Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with Freddie Cronenberg, founding director of the Richard and Hinda Rosenthal Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine at Columbia University. I'd like to welcome Dr. Freddie Cronenberg to our conversation this morning. Uh, Freddie is a professor of clinical physiology and director of the Richard and Hinda Rosenthal Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine at Columbia University in New York. And she is a leading expert on endocrinology and thermoregulatory physiology of menopausal hot flashes and alternative therapies to treat them. Uh, Freddie was director of one of the first 10 centers funded by the National Institutes of Health, National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine, the Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine Research in Aging and Women's Health. And she's uh, done research on a wide range of uh, issues in this area, including a study of the herb black cohosh for hot flashes and a study of the effects of a whole foods diet on maintaining optimal health in women as they age. She's done a wide range of projects, uh, research in China to study traditional Chinese medicine, with ethnobotanists at New York Botanical Garden to study herbal medicines of various ethnic traditions in New York City. And she has worked for a decade with uh, Dr. Andrew Weil on a unique series of continuing medical education courses in integrative medicine, including integrative pain management, botanical medicine and modern clinical practice, and the botanical medicine course, and finally the newest CME, Nutrition and Health. So, Freddie, welcome to the New School uh, Conversation. It's a pleasure to join you this morning. Let's start with the headline about black cohosh that is on Medline Plus today. Black cohosh fails to relieve menopausal symptoms. Uh, uh, And it goes on in another uh, headline to say, herbal supplement fails to relieve hot flashes in large NIH trial. Is this the end of black cohosh as a a treatment uh, for menopausal symptoms? I think that what um, happens with the media when they report on different studies in herbal medicines in particular is that they need some headlines. So they grab on the latest study and they uh, run with it and they like to also sensationalize the headlines. And what people have to remember is that the way science and, and uh, evidence develops is slowly with many pieces of the puzzle being put together before you have conclusions. The issues with herbal medicines, I'd say about 10 years ago when we first started our botanical course, um, herbals and work on them was sort of the sweetheart of the media, and they couldn't report fast enough on uh, the latest good reports on something that had been done with herbal medicine. The tide seems to have turned a little bit in the last maybe four or five years, and the press seems to take more uh, enthusiasm with with hyping the studies that have negative effects. Um, I think with something like black cohosh, that's an herb that's native to the United States. It grows up and down the east coast of the U.S., 
and it's been used here for many years by Native Americans and other populations, not necessarily for treating hot flashes, but, but for other women's health indications. And it was taken to Europe and studied and made into a uh, pharmaceutical-grade product and is sold as a prescription in Germany, which is the, the country where it was used mostly, and used for many, many years and had the equivalent of the German FDA uh, approval for use for menopausal symptoms. The product then made its way back to the U.S., and we became interested in it because it seemed as though, uh, as you know, for a long time, estrogen has been the gold standard of treatment for hot flashes in the United States. Uh, We have one definition for hot flashes, and we treat all hot flashes the same way. We give them estrogen. And estrogen is pretty good. It works for most women for treating their hot flashes. They may not like the side effects, et cetera, uh, but it actually is effective. Interestingly, in all these years, we have no clue what causes hot flashes. Why do some women have hourly hot flashes every day of every year for 20 years, and some women never have them? We don't know that yet. And even though we know that estrogen works, we don't know how it works. We don't know the mechanism. But, of course, we now know due to the Women's Health Initiative study, the large study, large NIH-funded study of thousands of women, that uh, giving estrogen for a prolonged period of time has problems, has uh, risks for breast cancer and other, other problems that are making women, of course, um, who were not suspicious of it in the first place, even more suspicious of using estrogen. So they're looking for alternatives. And among the alternatives, they're looking for things that might have some of the benefits of estrogen, that is, reducing hot flashes, without some of the downsides perhaps increased risk of breast cancer for long-term use. So black co-wash was interesting because it didn't seem to have, and it doesn't seem to have, these compounds called phytoestrogens, which I'm sure most of uh, the listeners are familiar with that term. Uh, Phytoestrogens are substances in plants that, when they're consumed by people, are converted into an active compound that acts like estrogen in some ways. And plants like soy, which, again, has been in the press a lot, has these phytoestrogenic compounds. Black cohosh does not. So it aroused interest because it didn't have these compounds, yet it seemed to be effective for hot flashes. So there have been a number of studies over the last 50 years, and you can imagine the studies that were done 40, 50 years ago, even 20 years ago, were not that good in terms of scientific rigor or quality, but the weight of the evidence seemed to be that it was beneficial for hot flashes. So the NIH um, funded several studies, and there have been studies that have come out of Germany as well from several black cohosh products, good quality products, Um, and the data have been mixed. Some of the studies show benefit, and some, uh, a few don't. There's more on the plus side than the minus side. Uh, the newest study that uh, w- was reported um, most recently, came out a number of months ago from the West Coast, was a study of a five-arm study of black cohosh versus placebo versus estrogen versus a mixed herb versus a soy diet. And the black cohosh did not come out better than these other arms of the study. Now, that's one study. It's a, not a huge study. It was, uh, I think, 60 or 80 women per arm. And we don't, and, and that, that data stands where it is. There are two other studies pending results, uh, one that we've done that also is not 
um, that large, and, and another one from Chicago. And it will be very interesting because it will be interesting to see what the results of these other studies are. And if they're all uh, the same as as the uh, Chicago stu- uh, as the um, West Coast study, that may tell us something. And if they're different, if one of the results are different than the others, that will even be more interesting because then we can try to look at, well, why did we're all using a similar extract? I don't think the issue is whether this is a good quality product. Some people are trying to raise that issue. Well, it's not a good quality product, so we can't count this study. I don't think that will be the reason, but it will be interesting. Are there this, this study with both peri- and postmenopausal women? That's a little problematic. Perimenopausal women have a lot of hot flashes, but their hormone levels go up and down. So you create um, some kinds of problems there. So what will it be that might explain the results of these studies? So the bottom line to your initial question is that I think the jury is still out. I think that um, we need to look at the weight of a, a number of studies when they all come to fruition and then begin to understand how these things work and why, and maybe they work for some subsets of populations and not others. If a woman is perimenopausal or postmenopausal and wants to come off estrogen or wants to not take estrogen, what is the best guidance at this point in terms of diet, in terms of exercise, in terms of herbal therapies to smooth that transition in the best possible way. So the w- it, women were taking estrogen for a number of reasons, and actually only a third of the sort of um, women who were in the right age range, if you will, for taking hormone therapy actually ever took it, and many of those never even filled their prescription. So most women never actually went on estrogen, but those who did went on it for several reasons. Initially, it was for hot flashes. People were waking up at night, waking up every hour, and it was very problematic for their, for their daily life. Um, subsequent to that, <clears throat> women were told you should take estrogen for heart disease. And, of course, we now know that these data um, were not borne out to be beneficial. And the third reason why women were put on estrogen was because of, their, of bone. And it, it, that's one of the, the areas where estrogen still has benefit, which is bone. But there are, of course, other pharmaceutical medications for bone, and people are now looking into herbals as well. So if you are on estrogen because you're having a hard time in this transition phase versus subsequent years postmenopausal when you might be worried about heart or bone, um, people can try a number of different things. For some people, I mean, there have been studies of exercise or of relaxation techniques or of acupuncture for hot flashes, but these studies are very few. There may be one or two on any of these modalities. Not enough for someone to rest their you know, hat on, on this, but, if you, but there's certainly nothing, um, no reason why people shouldn't try these things and see if it works for them. One of the, the things that was also touted far before and more than black cohosh has been soy. And that sort of grew out of uh, an observation 25 years ago in Japan by Margaret Locke, an anthropologist, who said Japanese women don't have too many hot flashes. Um, they eat soy. And people jumped on this, jumped to the conclusion that it must be the soy that was causing the fewer hot flashes before there was ever a single study on that. And it really grew out of proportion. When the research was done, the clinical trials, 
it was found, some of the clinical trials showed that actually soy was beneficial for reducing hot flashes and others not. Some people gave soy foods, whole foods, with varying amounts of soy, soy diets. And then what was done, as is typically done here, is that people said, okay, well, let's try to find the compound in soy that may be beneficial. And they pulled out one of the estrogenic compounds, this class of compounds called isoflavones, or genistein is one particular one that is now sold in bottles and give it to women. And the studies had mixed results. Um, I think soy, let's take a step backward, as a food eaten by people for centuries um, is certainly not harmful, and some women say it helps moderate their hot flashes. It may make them less intense so that you can tolerate them. You're not sweating as much or you're not waking up at night as much. We're now trying to understand, and this sort of speaks to the complexity of research in these areas, why might there be mixed results in these soy studies? Well, it turns out that, as I mentioned before, you have to convert these, these, these plant foods into an active compound, and that's done by the bacteria in your gut. So if you, for example, take an antibiotic and it knocks out the bacteria in your gut, these things may not work. If you... And it turns out that we now know that there are different kinds. Of, we all have thousands of bacteria in our intestines, and there's particular ones that convert the soy compounds to something estrogenic. And it turns out that Asian women, more than 50% of Asian women have the quote-unquote right bacteria, and less than a third of American women do. So maybe this might explain some of the differences in the clinical trial results. So, so certainly it hurts nobody to, to try to increase your soy intake and see if that sort of modulates or moderates the, the hot flashes and those kinds of problems. And I think Chinese herbs also, again, there's been very few studies on Chinese herbs in the U.S. or in Western countries, few studies, but I think these are going to prove to be a very interesting and I think potentially uh, beneficial route for treatment, and if you can find a qualified Chinese practitioner, I think it's, uh, rather than sort of trying to buy these products without guidance, I think that's also a way um, that is valuable, because I think these traditional systems look at a whole person. They don't just look at one uh, little piece like we're, we tend to do in this culture and try to understand not all hot flashes are the same, even though we call them hot flash. Some people sweat, some don't. Some people flush, some don't. Some people's heart rate goes up 25 beats a minute during a hot flash. Others don't. And these uh, herbal formulas highlight or focus on what it is that you as an individual, what symptom pattern do you have, and try to to work on that. So I think um, the... I think Chinese medicine will be sort of coming of age, if you will, in the next years in this country as the product quality improves because there have been lots of adulterations of Chinese products coming into the U.S. and the Chinese government is trying to improve upon that. But if you work with a good practitioner who has can guide you to appropriate sources, I think that's another route that people can take to look to more whole systems and whole, whole foods and whole uh, systems approaches to treating some of these physiological changes that all women are going to go through who live long enough to go through them. What are the best online sources for people to consult? When I was preparing for this call, I looked at the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine page, which has a number of resources, including herbs at a glance. I looked at the uh, Medline Plus herbs and supplements page. 
I looked at Herb Med, which is a proprietary project of the Alternative Medicine Foundation. I looked at the Herb Research Foundation and at Mark Blumenthal's American Botanical Council, which uh, co-published uh, in English the Commission E monographs on herbal therapies out of Germany in 1998, 380 monographs on 190 herbs, which I understand to be considered state-of-the-art. Then there's something called the Herbs Encyclopedia, and there are sites like Henrietta's Herbal, which advertises itself as the oldest uh, sort of herbal practitioner site on the web. If, if someone wants to consult the best science-based site, the most user-friendly but really grounded uh, site for clinical use of herbals, what are the resources that you use when you're researching an herb and that you would recommend to others? So you mentioned a lot of sites. Um, I think the there is no one site that has all of the answers from all the perspectives that one might want. I think the um, the government and NCAM site has limited resources, and they put together a limited number of monographs, and some of them, they have useful information, but there's a limited amount on herbs. Um, you mentioned the American Botanical Council and HerbMed. Um, those are certainly two sites, and HerbMed is available through the American Botanical Council um, Herbalgram website, herbalgram.org. Org. What the American Botanical Council also does is publish, uh, have a book on clinical use of herbs, and I'm not sure if this is on their website, but one of the things they publish are the studies, clinical trials on herbs and which products and which brands have been studied. So you could look there and see if you're going to try black cohosh, for example, or ginkgo or ginseng which products have been studied and what were the results of those products. It doesn't mean that those products are the only good products. There are many others on the market, but at least it tells you that those have had clinical trial data behind them. So that's one of the things that the American Botanical Council tries to do. And I think their publication, Herbalgram, is a very good source of, of information on what's going on in the regulatory arena, um, what's going on in the clinical trials arena, and and other areas. So that's uh, one good source, and I, as I said, HerbMed, which has information about some of the ethnomedical approaches um, and where, the, where there's research, et cetera. I believe it's accessible via ABC. Um, ConsumerLabs.com has a website. They test some, some products. So they might test a dozen St. John's Wort products, and, and what they're doing is saying, is what's on the label in the bottle. This is sort of a, a step in the right direction. It's a little bit tricky because how you measure, what tests you use, what, what, what um, chemical uh, assays you use to test these products, if two labs use two different assays, you may get different results with the same product. So it's a little bit tricky, but it, it's a beginning a step in the right direction to say are uh, products meeting their label claims or close to that. Um, are there any brands that have a reputation for being impeccable in terms of the quality of their herbal uh, products? 
You know, there there are a number of companies, and I would I would think I think I would. Let's, let's speak of, of names because uh, it's actually useful to people. Uh, I'm, I don't want to shy away. But neither of us have interests in these financially, and I'm just curious what product lines are actually useful to people in terms of quality. Uh, yeah, so, if you're talking about um, black cohosh. The, the herb that's been studied the most, Remy Femin, um, it, it's from a company called Sharper and Brummer in Germany. They have good quality products that have been on the market uh, for a long time, and they've put their money where their mouth is and studied it. The other studies that have come out on black cohosh are through a company called Bionorica. Unfortunately, their product is not yet available in the United States. It's a good quality product. You go to their factory, and it's you know, like going to a pharmaceutical factory. They're made to pharmaceutical grade their products. They're trying to move into a U- to the U.S. Uh, market right now. Um, what about more broadly, not just black cohosh, but more broadly uh, herbal products? Are there lines of herbal products widely available in the United States that have sta- established a very high reputation for the integrity and standards of the product or are most so of the what, what, what happens is companies like um, enzymatic therapies and um, eclectic herbs they most of these companies don't make their own herbs they distribute so um, black coash was first distributed by enzymatic therapies who distribute many different kinds of herbs they try to get good quality herbs then that was taken up by GlaxoSmithKline and that was tossed back to them so these are companies who um, for example, tend to distribute good quality products because most of the companies, as I said, don't make their own products. And things change very quickly. Like, uh, and I never can quite keep straight Nature's Way and Nature. You know, a number of these different companies that are changing quickly because when, if a few years ago, these some of these companies may not have uh, made such terrific quality products, they're all trying to come up to a higher standard now. And I think that um, we're in a really good time and bad time for consumers. Bad time is that we don't have all the answers, and yet in good time is that the bar is being raised. The FDA just uh, published um, good manufacturing guidelines that herb companies are going to now have to meet these standards. And when they do, I think, um, uh, you know, that will be a good thing for consumers. Their American Herbal Pharmacopoeia, um, there are some, some of these groups rate botanical products, and the um, American Botanical Council was putting um, a sort of good a seal of approval on some of the herbal products. I, I actually don't know what these look like right now on the products themselves, uh, whether you can find certain of these um, uh, UST labels or American Botanical Council sort of seals of approval on um, on some of the products, but I think these are things that people can be increasingly on the lookout for on on the bottles of herbs. And if uh, there are sort of guidelines that you can take when you go into a health food store, and it's very bewildering to see 50 products on the shelf of whatever it is you happen to be looking for. Um, some of the clues can be if it doesn't give you the scientific name of the herb and the amounts of the herbs and and list the thing, if it just says proprietary ingredient you won't you would want to shy away from something that doesn't tell you what's in that bottle um, and these are the kinds of guidelines you want to look for now in a, in a period when it, there's really a shakedown going on uh, in the herb industry and there's a 
a group called the um, American Herbal Products Association that has a um, that are beginning to try to again hold the feet to the fire of herb companies because the, the, the companies that aren't so good give a bad name to the ones who are doing a good job, um, and they're trying to again hold higher to higher standards um, these companies. So I think. Uh, if you begin to look at places like the American Herbal Pharmacopoeia website and um, ABC website, you'll begin. You can find out which of what what um, what reviews are being done of these products and begin to look for these signs on labels. American ABC being American Botanical Council. Right. Let's step way back from our current dilemmas in. Uh, understanding herbal products. I read on Wikipedia in its informative herbal medicine uh, entry that the first, uh, the first visual evidence of the use of herbs is found in the Lascaux cave paintings, where apparently there's some evidence that 13 to 25,000 years ago, people were already using herbs. And Wikipedia goes on to say that in the West, we've had three major herbal traditions uh, emerge as dominant. The Western tradition based on Greek and Roman sources, the Ayurvedic tradition out of India, and the traditional Chinese medicine tradition. I wondered whether you were of the view that is often expressed that effective herbal therapies, which after all often become pharmaceutical therapies, uh, uh, in which the, the active ingredients are refined and uh, made into pharmaceuticals, whether effective herbal therapies were arrived at originally purely by trial and error, which is a common view, or whether original peoples had some way of deeply knowing about the herbal properties of plants and in some sense were able to intuit or see into the plants they were using in terms of their potential benefits. What is your view of that? No, I think that there's something to be said in both of those things. Certainly people have tried by trial and error, and some of that trial and error actually comes from watching animals. Animals self-medicate with plants. If they get sick, you can. There's a whole field of zoopharmacognosy where people watch what animals do, and I'm sure that native peoples watched what other living creatures did, and um, you know, see what what people what uh, what animals do to treat themselves when they're sick. So that's certainly things have have uh, evolved by trial and error. By a lot of these plants have toxic compounds in them, and if you just go and ask some traditional healer, uh, what do you use? And they say herb X, Y, Z, and you just take that herb X, Y, Z. Without asking them how do you prepare that herbal formula, uh, a lot of the preparation involves leaching out the toxic compounds or heating out the toxic compounds or extracting the toxic compounds before you have uh, a safe and therapeutic herb. So there's, I'm sure, a lot of trial and error. Certainly some native people, some of the healers, traditional healers, will say that the, the knowledge is given to them uh, from whatever source. So you have, you have those that, that perhaps one, at least now, 
one hears more in a lot of the there there's sort of different lines of herbal traditions. You mentioned sort of Ayurveda and TCM, traditional Chinese medicine and Tibetan medicine, which are long standing, thousand year old traditions. There are large pharmacopoeias uh, uh, of herbal remedies. There are schools that teach these traditions versus other um, traditions of herbal treatments. Most, most cultures have herbal therapies. Say some of the traditions, um, the Mayan tradition or some of the other South American traditions where there's more apprenticeship. There's not these long-standing schools and books um, of knowledge there it's more word of mouth by apprenticeship. Um, so there are these different kinds of traditions, and in those other traditions, um, there's certainly you read more perhaps about people acquiring that knowledge, just knowing that the the plants are good for such and such. Um, so I think that you know I'm sure that there's a little bit of both in what's passed on and what's what's spoken about. We'll be right back after a short break. When when you ask yourself if you could do what was really of service to human beings and to all life in terms of herbal medicine, both nationally and at a global level, what what would you wish would be the direction that we would take in terms of research, in terms of clinical practice? The difference in terms of the, the structure of the pharmaceutical industry and the uh, the whole way that we have evolved uh, our pharmaceuticals obviously have enormous financial costs. Uh, pharmaceuticals are different from herbs. Uh, Andrew Weil has observed, and I've always vividly remembered this, that whereas a pharmaceutical will often move a particular organ system in one direction, that herbal remedies may upregulate something that is too low or downregulate something that is too high. So they have this kind of, if, if Andy is correct, this paradoxical capacity uh, to both upregulate and downregulate at the same time. So my question to you is, if you were czar of global health and medicine with a deep understanding, of, which I know you have, of the deep relationship between personal and planetary health. What is the direction that we should take herbal medicine at a global level, both in terms of our health and the health of the earth? I think that what's happened in medicine, as you sort of alluded to, um, is a the, you know, the pharmaceutical industry obviously is make certain compounds into medicines, um, some of which are valuable. And the, the supplement industry is actually following a similar route. They're finding, they're taking out one compound out of a food, for example, and putting it into a pill. And I think that if we switch from, if, if the idea is instead of taking a drug pill, we now take an herb pill, I don't think that really is the direction that 
we should be going or that people who are thinking in terms of whole systems and integrative health uh, believe that should be going. They're, the supplement companies are looking to make money just as much as the pharmaceutical companies are when they take that sort of route. Um, I think if we look around the planet today, most peoples of the world are using traditional systems of medicine as their primary health care. The, the WHO uh, last, in 2006, published a world atlas of traditional medicines. Uh, what countries are using herbal medicine, Ayurveda, uh, acupuncture, um, which companies regulate, which countries regulate these things, which countries um, have, have um, teach and have accreditation, et cetera. So the world is using these things. The United States and even Western countries are sort of late in the game uh, where these traditions have existed essentially forever. Um, if we're looking about today and we want to say what what should be done today, one of the things that a number of us have been thinking about is how do we assess the value of these traditional medicines and for the most part when we say that we we think herbal medicines but of course these traditional systems are talking about whole foods nutrition they're talking about exercise they're talking about mind body components to all of this so it's not really just herbs in isolation um but it's the easiest thing we can kind of get our hands around um these different traditions People are using these things as primary health care. And now people, of course, migrate around the world. And we have, just taking the U.S. as an example, in our cities primarily, but again in other places, we have people from all over the world, and they're bringing their medicines with them. And can they uh, – are these are – is the use of these traditional medicines a good thing for people to keep doing when they move into a Western environment? Is this not a good thing? Is it? How does it contribute to public health? How can we evaluate um, the value which many of us believe that using these different approaches have to the public health of, of populations around the world? There, there are populations where we don't even, they don't even have essential primary health care. Uh, how can the, the traditional medicine where is the value and where where does Western medicine have its value, which it obviously does, and where do these traditional systems uh, play a role uh, in in some of the major health concerns around the world and in, in, in daily public health? If you look at malaria is an interesting example of a health problem, and in most countries... And we have, of course, a drug we use for malaria, and the drugs are becoming resist. Or the organisms are becoming resistant to our single compound drugs. And in most cultures where malaria is endemic, they have herbal anti-malarials. They're multi-compound herbal formulas. And and as as you know, it's from sort of ecological principles. It's much and, and evolutionary principles. It's much more difficult for an organism to become resistant to a complex mixture than to a single compound. And so just like in the area of, of AIDS and HIV, we've we've evolved from one drug to two drugs to AIDS cocktails. Well, this is what herbal pe- people were, traditional people were doing with herbal formulas in, in the first place. So I think... Is there scientific evidence that the herbal anti-malarials are effective? 
there's work being done in, in, in India and in a number of countries now, given that the, the drugs are becoming uh, less effective. There's actually considerable work being done to show that these herbal mixtures, uh, herbal formulas, uh, act in a number of different points in the pathway of the uh, of malaria to knock out different aspects of the of the whole process. So there's research actively being done, and I believe that there was uh, an article in the in the New York Times a couple of months ago about people looking now back to these herbal formulas, uh, anti-malarial formulas. So there's active research in that area, um, for sure. And, it, you know, this sort of speaks to the whole idea, both in nutrition and in, in herbal medicine, of looking at the whole system and not just taking out, you know, one compound like we do with... Speaking of the whole system, you and I have discussed Ted Shetler's work on the concept of ecological health and the conversations that we have been having in the CHE Integrative Health Working Group and more broadly in the Collaborative on Health and the Environment about how deeply the traditions of integrative medicine and the concept of ecological health resonate with each other. Ted's work on ecological health points to the fact that with many current diseases in which environmental contaminants, chemicals, and other factors play a role, it is not that a single chemical is likely to be found that is the cause of breast cancer or learning disabilities or infertility or a hundred other conditions in which these contaminants play a role, but rather that there are infinitely complex interactions going on between mixtures and sources of stress balanced to differing degrees by different genetic inheritances, different gene expressions, different patterns of stress and resilience in people's lives. So in conversations with Ted Shetler, what has emerged is a approach in which we say, given the complexity of all these interactions, almost any reduction in toxic or stressful exposure will be beneficial to the whole system, and almost any improvement in resilience that we can manage to achieve will be beneficial. So in the complexity of ecological health, the approach taken in complementary and alternative medicine and integrative medicine often involves enhancing the resilience of the organism. And I know you've thought a lot about these questions, and I just wanted to ask you to reflect on this interface between an essentially holistic analysis of planetary well-being and an essentially holistic analysis of individual well-being, and where the opportunities are to make these linkages more explicit and more coherent so that we can talk about them scientifically, ethically, philosophically, and practically in ways that people can truly understand. Now, I think that um, those of us, I think it's very important to, to bring these two areas that at times are tend to be separate, integrative medicine and ecological health, ecology, um, broader views of, um, of the environment 
they tend to be separate groups of people doing separate things. And, of course, they're people who, if you ask, are uh, philosophically in line with their compatriots in this other group. But they're really not talking to each other so much. Um, integrative people who are practicing so-called integrative medicine are really not always doing that. Sometimes it's not really integrating. It's doing one technique or another, and that the individual practitioner may not be integrating. They may be just doing their own thing. And I think the the more that, that one is aware of that and that people think about how can they actually be communicating um, more fully is something that needs to be be thought about. Now, you know, the whole issue of complexity of uh this is why it's so difficult to do research in this area, why a randomized controlled trial really doesn't hit the mark. Uh, you're, you're trying to make something simple as you can, a homogeneous population, um, no, nobody taking other drugs in, in, or anything else or supplements, and then you wonder why when whatever it is, be it an herb or a drug or a mind-body technique, is then put out into the larger population, you may not see the same effectiveness because there is this complexity. Um, however, just because it's complexity, it doesn't mean we have to be um, limited. We can't do anything. I think when people have are throwing around the term evidence-based medicine these days, I think there's a little um, bit of problem with that. I think the better phraseology could be evidence-guided medicine uh, because we're, we aren't going to have all of these answers um, today or maybe ever, but I think as as Ted has put it in a view as you've phrased it, by increasing resilience and decreasing any kind of toxic exposure, you do improve um, the ability of organisms to to survive. And I think that um, there are very few medical schools that teach about ecology and teach about environmental issues. Uh, I, speaking for Columbia, there's one course that a medical student gets probably a few hours on medical ecology. Uh, and I think it's really essential that doctors sort of have that uh, almost ingrained in them from the outset so that they can put the kinds of things that they're doing in a broader perspective of the fact that there are these, that they kind of learn that, you know, there are other influences, social factors and political factors and economic factors that affect people's health and psychological factors and spiritual factors. Um, and I think that the environment is something that isn't, uh, isn't in the mix enough in terms of what medical students learn, for example. Um, and I think, you know, if you look back 30 years or so or 40 years, the terms that were used then was holistic medicine. And I think that really nicely better reflects what we're talking about than alternative medicine or complementary medicine or or maybe even integrative medicine. People don't necessarily what are you integrating? And and as I said, not everybody is in fact integrating in the sense of saying, well, well what are all the pieces that we have to to put together? Uh and I think the more that the the medical and clinical practitioners think about the environments in which people are, are are living in and the environmental influences on health that our groups like like uh, Che are bringing to the fore so that people can can know about them uh, to a greater extent 
need to be integrated into medical education so that doctors are aware that it's not just a few symptoms and you treat the symptoms according to a textbook. Uh, most people don't fit a textbook definition of almost anything. And I think this is one of the things that's interesting about how traditional healers and traditional systems um, uh, look at things is um, speaks to this a little bit in that they use different kinds of diagnoses than Western practitioners, and they look at all different kinds of symptoms, a whole battery of symptoms, and try to put the whole together perhaps a little better than uh, some of the Western counterparts do, although I think once upon a time, physicians, when they didn't have all these uh, fancy equipment to use, were better observers of a person's physical being or talked to people more or spent more time with patients and were more holistic in their approach. Uh, Medicine obviously has drifted away from that, not all, and there's plenty of physicians who, who still... Um, look at things in a, in a more whole way. But I think the terminology is interesting in how it's evolved over time away from holistic, which does express this not only whole from the individual point of view, but where, where is the individual in, in their own community and in the ecological environment in which they live. And we all know or I think would say that the health of the environment in which we live obviously affects our own health, both mental health and physical health, and we're learning those interactions and where those where those interface. Uh, we're learning more about that every day. What we kind of sense intuitively, we're now beginning to uh, find out specifically on how some of these things actually work. Thank you, Freddie. I'm going to ask the operator to open the lines now. And I'd like to ask the participants on the call if you uh, have any background noise, uh, if you're not in a very quiet place or if you're on a cell phone, to please uh, put your phone on mute. And we welcome uh, comments or questions. Mr. Lerner, all lines are open at this time. Thank you. Any thoughts? Don't be shy. Alan Margolis, I'd like to make a general uh, comment and thank you very much, Freddie, for uh, the broad view that you have portrayed and, and the essential uh, complications that occur as you try to dissect out all the aspects of, of, of what you're interested in. Um, but I, I'd like to ask a question in terms of what last came up, and that is, uh, you know, in terms of environmental health and living in the modern communities that we find ourselves, uh, besides specific uh, medications, what what do you recommend to a woman who seeks to um, you know improve their lifestyle uh, besides whatever they might get from uh, medications of a sort? I think you know if you ask, I would think maybe I'm wrong, but if you ask the average person, what is it that you could do? to improve your health, whatever aspect of your health, all aspects or any anything in particular, I would think that by now, given all the things that have been drummed into us from every media uh, thing, that people would say, I, sh- I need to exercise better more and I need to, and I should be eating healthier. They may not all have the same definition of what that is, but I would think that a lot of us would say that, even though a lot of us don't 
do that as well as we might. Um, one of the few things that's been shown to have a beneficial effect with respect to breast cancer and risk for breast cancer is exercise, yet that's not touted. So I think that um, I, I really don't think that taking pills and herbs, even whole herbs and formulas and concoctions are the answer. I think we do need to uh, have a better, have a more you know, a broader base uh, in terms of some of the mind-body approaches that people take. I think one of the very interesting things is placebo effect. If you look at hot, just take hot flashes because it's the example I know best. There's a ton of research on placebo right now. There is a 30 to 60 percent placebo effect when in studies of hot flashes, be they studies of drugs, be they studies of herbs. Now, that's very interesting. That And it lasts for at least three months. Now, that means that people, something is going on in one's body that's getting rid of your hot flashes that has nothing to do with something you take. And if that's the case, I think most of our research should be studying that and how the mind influences physiology, which we all know that it does, and people have known that for years, and there's been research on that for years. And maybe we could forget about all these drugs if we could get better, all get better control of sort of this mind physiology connection, if you will, that we all have uh, access to to differing degrees, um, depending on how we how we apply ourselves to it, and I think that that's among the most important things we could be looking at, um, and where that, and also those things are gaining in interest uh, among researchers. Uh, but I think that those kinds of mind-body controls are really very valuable, and we should start with kids when they don't know that they can't do these things, and start young in schools with children. Well, thanks a lot. That's really great. Other questions and comments, please. I have a question, and this is Cheryl Patton at Commonweal. And thank you for that very excellent presentation and the interview. I thought I learned a lot. I think it's extremely useful. Uh, my question has to do with just this whole menopause idea. I, I remember reading that when we look at women's menstrual cycles, it was assumed. Um, when birth control pills came out, that women basically followed more or less a 30-day cycle, and that's how you should set up the taking of uh, birth control pills. And then subsequent research looking at how women actually lived in, in cultures far away from industrial society suggested that that wasn't quite true, that women were often pregnant and having children and breastfeeding and, and, and uh, uh, not having... Uh, Another pregnancy till the, ch the, the the child of baby was maybe two or three because of possibly because of breastfeeding practices and isolation during the period of breastfeeding and all of that. So this whole thirty day idea uh, was maybe not quite what really happened when women were living away from an industrial society, a modern society. And I'm wondering whether there's anything applicable uh, to menopause in in by looking at. Uh, what people might call more primitive societies, how women experience menopause. Is it, is it, is it, is it the same? Are there, there hot flashes? Uh, does it happen at certain times? I'm just kind of curious whether there's some kind of parallel research that indicates that perhaps menopause is experienced differently in cultures that don't do uh, the, the small amount of exercise that our culture does, uh, eat more natural foods, uh, 
perhaps have different ideas about childbearing and uh, women's uh, roles. I'm just kind of curious about that. Did you do anything about that, Freddie? Yeah, that's a good question. Let me just preface this with your comment about um, 30-day menstrual cycles. There was someone who about 40 or more years ago um, uh, studied, kept track of menstrual cycles of many, many, many women over from sort of puberty through menopause and kept track of these cycles and published a, a whole book on this. And it turns out that if you average every woman's menstrual cycle length, the average is 28 days. But then very few women have 28-day cycles. They're either 26 or 29 or 32 or 25, and the average is 28, but not that many people are 28 days. And I was interested in that for a very long time and things that influenced cyclicity. Um, you probably have heard... So, so just to state that that um, they're really, I think this, the 28-day or 30-day cycle is not, it's an average number. It's not a representative number of what people experience, and cycles are very different depending on lots of things that you expressed and just different physiological and genetic variations, uh, I think. So that's one thing. I was interested in, because I was once interested in menstrual cycle synchrony, this phenomena that one hears about of women living together and um, whether that's ceremonially mediated because cycles in, in, in uh, other mammals are influenced by pheromones and females of various species come into reproductive uh, fertility at certain times together because there's various evolutionary reasons for that. So that's one thing. And in terms of menopause, um, people have looked at this extensively for the, over the last 30 years since Margaret Locke's first observation in Japan that Japanese women didn't have or didn't, she didn't uh, report that they had hot flashes, for example. And it turns out that uh, a young researcher, Melissa Melby, has gone back now, recently, 30 years later, and sort of repeated some of these questions. And people have written about menopause in different cultures, be they vegetarian Indian women or more rural versus urban uh, women living in rural versus urban environments, trying to tease this out. And for a while, there was a wave of literature saying Asian women in general tended to have fewer menopausal symptoms. But was it because how how the questions were asked? We as Western researchers would come in and ask the questions the way we ask them of women here. And it turns out the Japanese women, while they still probably have fewer hot flashes than Western women, and it may be because of soy in the diet. It turns out seaweed has some estrogenic properties, so it may be because of other foods in their diet, not just soy. But it turns out they have a much more subtle and uh, description of these symptoms. And it's not just you have a hot flash the way Westerners may define it. And now she was asking in a much more subtle way, difference is in the way your body experiences heat and cold and flushes. And now when you ask, there's several different words. It's not just one word for hot flash. There's many different words. And if you add up all these different kinds of sort of temperature sensations, now you get a different number. Um, So it may be the way we ask the questions of different cultures, the way people experience their physiology and, um, and physiological changes. I remember uh, that, that uh, in, in, you know, determine how, how things are reported on. I wouldn't 
I think that there are differences in the incidence of some of these things in different societies. And there's also this whole factor of the medicalization of menopause, just like we've medicalized much else of sort of biological function. Menopause is now medicalized. You must manage it, be it managing it with herbs or managing it with drugs in this society. And a lot of women really sort of react instinctively against that. that it's, it's a natural phenomenon and it doesn't need to be managed. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't do something to ease symptoms that are making your life more difficult. And it may be that in cultures, in rural cultures, there is there are some of these symptoms, um, but maybe it's how they're not relatively that important. So they weren't... Now that people in other cultures know the words for these things, now they... People talk about them differently. I I believe that there are probably genetic differences. I believe that there are probably influences of exercise and foods that we eat on expressions of symptoms of menopause, just as there are expressions of symptoms of other phenomena. But I do think that there is some physiological changes that happen when estrogen levels decline in women wherever they are, that there's going to be some similarities across cultures that are due to those changes in estrogen levels. Some cultures, like in Asia, Chinese women, for example, their baseline estrogen levels are different. So perhaps they have less of a drop that occurs, and so there's less of a dramatic change and therefore fewer symptoms. Um, we know that different populations are have different physiological responses to, drug, to pharmaceuticals, for example. Um, so I think we're learning that different physiologies um, experience these symptoms differently, be they individuals within one culture or across cultures. Um, so I think there are some things that are going to be universal, but I think the the, um, the degree of expression of those will be different in different cultures and populations due to these various reasons. And people are very actively looking at these kinds of questions that you raised. Wonderful. Well, Freddie, I want to thank you for a deeply informative, interesting conversation with the New School and the Collaborative on Health and the Environment. We are in your debt and grateful that you are a partner of the New School and of the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, and we look forward to many further dialogues with you on these questions. Yes, thank I, you again. Thank you. It's an exciting group of people working to interesting and so it's a pleasure to be involved. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the new school.